My friends, we're pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. Katie Hinman today as our guest preacher on this Earth Justice Sunday as we celebrate uh, all the ministries of our Earth Justice team and the ways that we are being reminded of God's work in this creation. Katie, welcome. We're grateful for your word to us today. Thank you so much for having me here today. It is a delight to be in worship with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I have already been introduced to you, although I believe they left out a key part, which is that um, I am a United Methodist pastor. So I especially thank you for um, allowing me into your church this morning uh, to be part of worship with you. And today I am delighted to be able to talk with you about stuff. Actually, we are going to talk about stuff. There's a wonderful short film that you can watch online called The Story of Stuff. In it, the narrator, Annie Leonard, outlines where the stuff that we buy and use every day comes from, where it goes. She follows the line from extraction, getting the raw materials for the stuff, production, turning those raw materials into stuff, distribution, getting the stuff around the country and the world, consumption, buying and using the stuff, and disposal, getting rid of the stuff. It's a story told simply and elegantly. It has simple cartoons that illustrate each of these steps. And it's clever and charming. It's funny. It's easily understandable. And it's also incredibly shocking and disturbing because when laid out in such stark and simple terms, we see how our obsession with stuff is harming our planet, our health, our economic well being, and even our spiritual well being. The story of stuff shows us that our greed and our desire to have more, bigger, and better stuff is gradually sucking the life out of our planet and out of us as people. We are becoming defined by our stuff, by our roles as consumers, by the way we relate to the things that we have. One of the most disturbing parts of the film is a quotation from a retailing analyst named Victor Lebeau. And in the film, Annie Leonard is pointing out that our obsession with stuff and our cultural emphasis on having and buying more didn't happen by accident but that it was actually analyzed and deliberately planned as a way to make us economically competitive. She quotes Victor Lebeau as saying, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. That's a terrifying thought. And yet, unfortunately, somewhat familiar. We are told over and over by ads on the internet, on TV, in magazines, that we aren't cool unless we have the latest gadget, unless our hair looks a certain way, we wear the right clothes, even that we use the right cleaning products. Our self-worth and our satisfaction are repeatedly tied to what we have and what we can get. But Lebeau says it's not just our ego satisfaction, not just our self-image that we'll get from consuming. It's our spiritual satisfaction. 
in our consumer culture, we've begun to treat spirituality as a commodity. We see ourselves as consumers. That becomes our identity and it becomes our spirituality. Now, this may not be something we think explicitly about a lot, but it's certainly a familiar story. We see it played out every day. We go to work to earn money so that we can buy stuff. And it makes us happy for a little bit until we realize that the stuff we have isn't good enough or cool enough or it's so five minutes ago and we have to go out and get more stuff and different stuff and better stuff. It's a story we take part in without even thinking about it. And in fact, it's hard to think how we could even get out of this story, even if we wanted to. I mean, it's the basis for our whole economy, right? It's how things keep going. It's how we measure our worth. But what if there was another story, another vision, another way of being in the world? What if we knew God's story of stuff? Now, as a scientist, I love the creation stories of the Bible, not because I use them as a scientific guide to explain how the earth came to be, but because they put into spiritual language what we see and explore in nature, the creativity and power of God and of the creation, the ways that God calls creation itself to be creative, to bear fruit, the two creation stories in Genesis in the first and second chapter are probably the most familiar. They tell us of a creator who calls the earth into being, who is able through a word to bring life forth from the earth, and then who invites that earth to be part of creation, to be fruitful and multiply. And it doesn't matter whether you think it happened in six days or in six billion years, the story of creation is a story of a power beyond understanding and an earth that God's hands are in, that God loves and values. This is God's story of stuff, where it came from, what it means, where it's going. And the Bible is full of these creation stories. It doesn't just happen in Genesis. <clears throat> the Psalm Psalm 104 is one of those stories of stuff. Now, we sang a bit with the Antiphons right before the, um, right before the sermon. We also had a hymn at the beginning that was basically the words of Psalm 104, but I'm gonna read a little bit of it for you as well. And in this Psalm, we hear a litany of the care with which God creates, not just bringing forth life, but continually caring for that life. I'm gonna read, uh, starting with verse 10. You make springs gush, gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and the plants for people to use to bring forth from the food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. 
The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nest. The stork has its home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the conies. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. God's imminence is evident through the creation. This psalm lists in great detail all the stuff that God has done, that God has made, that God continues to do. It reads like the most poetic biology lesson. This isn't just a couple of things that the psalmist thought of that God did well, and then back to our regularly scheduled programming of all the things that we do really well. This is the psalmist showing us how everything comes from and is dependent upon God and how God provides for everything from the stars in the heavens, the wind and the earth itself to the birds, the lions, and even the badgers. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you open their hand, your hand, they are filled with good things. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. The entire earth is satisfied. And yet we never are. It's really the story of our lives from the beginning. If you go back to those first creation stories, the abundance, abundance and awesomeness of the Garden of Eden. And yet Adam and Eve were not satisfied with having their every need met. They had to reach beyond their limits. And we do the same day in and day out. God provides for us a wonderful blooming earth, the water we need, the food we need, the air we need, and not just for sustenance, but for joy, the wine to gladden the human heart. And what do we say? Huh, I need some new clothes. I need the latest iPhone. I need a new car. We don't even recognize the abundance of creation, or if we do, it's merely to recognize it as a frontier to be exploited. Our idea of what it means to be satisfied is so far removed from the psalmist's depiction. It's no wonder the Rolling Stones sing, I can't get no satisfaction. How can we possibly get satisfaction when our entire identity is about consuming? is about more. We can never have enough, do enough, be enough. This desire for more and better and bigger has disastrous consequences on our environment. From extraction of resources to the pile up of waste to decimation of natural ecosystems. And it has disastrous consequences for our fellow humans unsafe labor practices, environmental injustice. This is a problem of our heart, a problem of our spirit, because we are getting our spiritual satisfaction from consumption, from more and more and more. This is a problem not only of greed, but of pride. In our culture, pride is a virtue. It's a basic right. We talk about school pride and national pride and pride in our accomplishments. But pride can be a sin when it sets us not only above other people, but 
but actually sets us above God. We think we know best and that we deserve everything that we want. Everything that God has made is all for us. Surely we were who the world was made for. Surely God means for us to be in charge, to take all that we could possibly desire. And our consumption is just further confirmation that we are the ones the world is all about. But if we ever believe that the earth is all for us, God sets us straight. In fact, God's longest speech in the Bible, in the book of Job, is all about this. It's a litany of the majesty, creativity, and mystery of the natural world and our complete insufficiency in even grasping it. When God comes to answer Job's questions about life and meaning, it's not through philosophical discourse or deep theological treatises. It's through four chapters of some of the most powerful natural history ever recorded. In Job chapter 38, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their den? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? Look at behemoth, which I made just as I made you. It eats grass like an ox. Its strength is in its loins and its power in the muscles of its belly. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like bars of iron. For the mountains yield food for it where all the wild animals play. Under the lotus plant, it lies in the covert of the reeds and in the marsh. It is the first of the great acts of God. That's right. The first of the great acts of God is the hippopotamus. What does this say about us? Is the earth all for us? No, this is God's story of stuff. God provides for all creation and God cares for all creation. God loves us. We are made in God's image, but we are but one part of an even greater whole. This is very different from our story of stuff. In our story, our value comes from the things we have the things we can buy. We are the best, the most important, the ones to whom everything else in the world is in service. In God's story, our value comes from being creatures, from being created parts of God's world. 
In our story, our creation and consumption of stuff causes destruction and pollution, exploitation and injustice. In God's story, everything is in balance. The provision of all creation is interconnected. The waters that God makes provides the plants to grow, which provide food for the animals and people and shelter for the birds. The cycles of the seasons of day and night provide a backdrop for the cycle of life in which all creation is satisfied. We don't longer respect that cycle. We don't respect the limits it places on us. We no longer respect the power and right of our fellow creatures to thrive in the environments in which they're adapted. We have seen the abundance of God's creation and taken it as a license to exploit and dominate. We are not satisfied. God has much to say about us trying to find our spiritual satisfaction in stuff. God has much to say about using and abusing creation and our fellow humans when we try to make our own satisfaction. God provides abundantly, but not without limit. If we take our faith seriously, we will value the earth simply because it exists as a gift from God and a manifestation of a power beyond our understanding. Why do we care for creation? Because God says it is very good. We should protect and value our environment because it has something to tell us about who we are, where we came from, the source of our being. We strive for a cleaner environment, not because it will help protect our health and our investments, but because it, will, it deserves it as a creation of God. We must transform our way of thinking. This is not all about us, not all about us personally, not even all about us as a species. We are called to love and honor creation, not for our sake and what it can do for us, but for its own sake, for what it teaches us about God. We must repent of our pride and our greed of our misuse and misunderstanding of God's creation. And we must confront the larger culture that says we can and should have it all. The culture we set, that says we don't answer to anybody. The culture that says it's all about us. This takes humility. We are not the center of the universe. This really puts us in our place as part of creation not separate, not above, but within this larger creative world. The world doesn't depend on us. It doesn't revolve around us. And yet we treat it as though it's here for our glory, for our desires. But the Bible reminds us that creation is God's concern without reference to us. Life comes from God creativity and abundance and satisfaction and provision. When we try to take that place to be the arbiters of creation, 
to demand beyond what we need to take for our own satisfaction without regard to the rights of the rest of creation. We are putting ourselves above God. Now, this is a case, I will admit, of preaching the sermon that I need to hear. I am well and truly a product of this culture. I struggle and God helps me to change my heart, to see the world with an eye of curiosity rather than veracity, to see creation not as raw materials to produce the things that I think I want, but as a beautiful reflection of the creativity of God. This takes a change of our heart, finding our spiritual satisfaction not in consumption, but in curiosity, wonder, gratitude, awe. It takes intentionality to break free of the story that culture is telling us and about us. We need to see and rebel against this idea that our identity is as consumers. Our identity is as children of God, creations of the Most High, fellow creatures with the rest of the natural world. Whose story of stuff do you want to be part of? Hear these words from St. Augustine. Some people, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above you. Look below you. Note it. Read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he had made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? In the name of the Creator, of the Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.